everyone, I'm Meg Teets, and this is Sorta Awesome. Hello and welcome back, Awesomes. You are listening to the show that is all about helping you be smart, strong, and social. We are in your earbuds every single week with all the awesome that you need to know. And you can also find us on Instagram at Sorta Awesome Show or over on Facebook in our Sorta Awesome Hangout group. I have here with me today my dear friend and lovely co-host Kelly Gordon. And I think it's pretty safe to say that we are both a little bit giddy about today's episode. One year ago on Sorta Awesome on episode 91, Eight Habits That Build a Happy Life, Kelly shared with you that her awesome of the week was Blue Baby's Pink. Just as a quick reminder, Blue Baby's Pink is Brett Trapp's story of growing up as a gay Christian in the South. And over 44 chapters, he tells his story of what that was like growing up his coming out experience, and what his life has been like since. Kelly loved Blue Baby's Pink so much that not only was it her Awesome of the Week on episode 91, it was also her Awesome of the Year last year for 2017. And so we are so excited that as part of our focus for March in this, the year of the awesome, as we are focusing in this month on how to be excellent to ourselves and the world around us, Kelly and I were able to sit down with Brett himself and have a truly awesome conversation about how we can show up well in coming out conversations. This conversation is so fantastic. And I know you awesomes are going to love hearing from Brett, whether you're a person who is openly affirming of people who are LGBT, or even and especially if you're a person who wants to be loving toward all of our fellow humans, but who maybe struggles to reconcile your belief system with people who are LGBT. And hey, Listen, we have awesomes who are listening right now who are LGBT, or maybe you have children who are. Wherever you are on the spectrum, I hope you will stay tuned for this conversation with Brett. There is truly something for everyone here, and Brett is just an amazing storyteller and has some fantastic wisdom to share with all of us. But before we get to all of that, let's go ahead and start this show the way we always do with our awesomes of the week, that moment in the show when we share about the books, TV, music, podcasts anything, television shows, all the things that are in our lives that are making our lives a little bit more awesome right now. So Kelly, I can't wait to hear what you have. Oh, my awesome of the week this week, Meg. I'm so excited about it because it's a new TV show, which is not my thing, but it is on NBC. And my sister told me about it and she said, hey, your kids might like this. It is Ellen's Game of Games. Okay. It is a game show where Ellen DeGeneres is the host and it is a goofy, funny game show. It is for adults. Like it's not for kids, but at the same time, a lot of it feels almost like a Nickelodeon run game show where there are challenges for these adults to do and they involve oftentimes just funny stunts or people getting messy. So I'll tell you about the one that we watched last week, although we're trying to binge them all. It had uh, two gentlemen who were going to be asked questions and had to first, though, be strapped into back-to-back chairs and be spun around so that they'd get dizzy. And then they had to stand up and run toward a ball that was rocking back and forth on like a little pendulum stand and grab it. And that was how they got the right to answer Ellen's trivia question. And the trivia questions were super easy. Like, who sings Shake It Off? So obviously, this in this case, it was not about... 
how hard is this trivia question? It is all about seeing two grown men get spun around and then try to run toward a ball that is TikToking back and forth. It was hysterical. My kids laughed so hard. Actually, my seven-year-old, who has a lot of energy, could not sit. Like he was standing, jumping, flipping over furniture, kicking things the entire time because he was laughing so hard. It is such a fun game show. So here's the problem. Awesomes. I'm so sorry. I feel like I'm telling you about something and then I'm like, and you can't watch it anymore. Because as far as I know, it was on Hulu and the NBC app and both places just had the show expire. So the first six, seven, eight episodes. But it does look like you can still find it and that they might be releasing more. So go to NBC.com. And of course, if we ever find it, we'll put it in the show notes or we'll share it here on the air or in the hangout. Um, But Ellen's Game of Games, if you can find it, it is hysterical. It is great. This is what I love about it. Family, the full family can watch this show. It's clean. It's funny. It's fun. And if you're on Hulu, there's no commercials. We, having kids ranging in age from 7 to 16, can hardly ever find something that everybody loves to watch. Pixar might be like the only exception to that. So to find this for our family, to have it be something that we could sit down real quick after dinner and watch this together and really enjoy it, it was just truly an awesome of the week. Okay, so Ellen's Game of Games. I had not heard of that at all, but now I will definitely be keeping an eye out for it. My kids love Ellen too. So fun and so funny. So we will definitely be looking for that. Okay, my awesome of the week this week is my passion planner. Now we've talked planners quite often on Sorta Awesome. And I think I've told you all, in fact, one of my past awesomes of the week was the Nomadic Planner, which I really loved because I felt like it was a great hybrid of bullet journaling, which I love. But I also realized I needed a little bit more structure for regular life scheduling stuff. Well, at the end of last year, I went ahead and got a passion planner, which I had seen people talk about and rave about for a long time. And I loved my nomadic so much, but I felt like I really needed something with a little bit more of a planning component to it. So here we are almost at the end of the first quarter of 2012, and I love this thing. It was exactly what I needed. I think in my mind, I thought I needed something really intensive for planning. But as it turns out, the passion planners level of goal tracking and reflecting on how you're meeting your goals, it's actually just the right level for me. (laughs) I think I had in my mind that I needed something really intense. But I don't. This is just right for me. So at the beginning of each month, it allows it gives you space to talk about what your month's focus is both personal and work wise the people you want to see, which I think is so great, the places to go in your not to do list, which Kelly and I know a lot about. We've done a whole episode on the things that we don't do. So I love that it kind of gives you a space for your personal projects that you can list out by priority, your work projects, again, giving you a space to separate what's priority, what's not priority. And then it gives you a space to make a mind map for each month's game changer. So you identify what your game changer for the month is going to be. And then it gives you space to brainstorm that out, which I really love. I also super love the monthly monthly reflections that asks you things like, what were the biggest lessons you've learned? Um, How are you different between this past month and the one before it? Who or what are you especially grateful for this month? Then in the weekly spread, there's also a place for your focus for the week. You have a list of, you you have a space for good things that happen during the week. 
they give you a personal to-do list and a work to-do list, and then a huge space for just, they call it the space of infinite possibility. And I love it because I'm such a brainstormer, such a mind mapper. It really does allow me to bring a little bit of bullet journaling into each weekly spread. But then also at the end, there are tons of lined and gridded pages. So you can do even more traditional bullet journaling. And I have totally been taking advantage of those pages in the back. So anyway, my house in the week, this really been an awesome of the year so far, and that is the Passion Planner. So if you all, I know lots of us who love planners are always looking for our next great planner, um, I'm going to say I highly recommend it. It has been an actual game changer for me this year. So that's my house of the week. And don't forget that every single Friday, we are over in this sort of awesome hangout group, opening up the floor every Friday for you guys to share your awesomes of the week. If you haven't joined us in that community, you can find us anytime on Facebook at facebook.com slash group slash sort of awesome hangout. Well, awesomes, we are smack dab in the middle of our spring break around here. And that means myself and my kids were out of the house a lot these days. And everyone knows that the most awesome thing a mom can have in her bag when she's out and about with her kids is snacks. And I'm so thankful that we have RX bars for kids so that I always have a healthy snack right at my fingertips, right in my bag when we are out on the go. RX Bar Kids is a clean label snack bar made with high quality, real food ingredients, especially for kids. It has egg whites, fruit, and nuts as the base, and each bar contains seven grams of protein. You know they got to get their protein in so they don't have any meltdowns while you're out and about. And they have absolutely zero added sugar. They're gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, free of all the bad stuff. They are just honestly delicious, clean, and convenient snacks that all of my kids love, especially those chocolate chip ones. Those are a favorite around here. If you would like to discover the awesome of always having a healthy snack right at your fingertips for yourself or for your kids, you can find RX Bar Kids at Target stores or you can go right to their website and get 25% off of your first order when you visit rxbar.com slash awesome and enter promo code awesome at checkout. Again, you can find them at Target stores, but you could also go right to the website rxbar.com slash awesome, enter promo code awesome at checkout for 25% off of your first order. Thank you to RX Bar. Okay, awesomes, you all know how much I love my planner. And honestly, I love making to-do lists in there every week. But the most frustrating thing about my to-do list is when I see that there are things on there that just get rolled over from week to week. But I have discovered a fantastic service to help me get a lot of things on my to-do list done, especially making those phone calls. It's called Magic. Really, that's the name, Magic. Magic is staffed by trained personal assistants that 24-7 are there at your beck and call. You just send Magic a text message with your request and a real person gets to work right away. Not an automated bot, a real person on the other end gets to work on what you need help with. Magic's personal assistants can help you with almost anything. Biggest thing that Magic has helped me with so far is helping me find a place to get our puppy Jaja boarded for a long weekend. They did all of the research that they read, Yelp Review, They knew what requirements we had, what dates we needed. The process was completely painless for me and taken care of in a snap. The great thing about Magic is there's no monthly fees. There's no commitments. It's not a subscription service. You only pay for what you use. Totally affordable, low cost per minute. And you can use it as little or as often as you need. And because I want to be able to help you get more things knocked off of your to-do list, Magic is giving you all 
call The Awesomes a special offer. Your first request to magic is free. To get this great offer, you have to go to my special link, which is getmagic.com slash awesome. Getmagic.com slash awesome. And again, your first request will be free. And you can start knocking those pesky things off of your to-do list today. Thank you, Magic. Many of you need absolutely no introduction to Brett Trapp because we know so many of you have found his work to be so powerful. Whether you read his story of Blue Baby's Pink or listened to the podcast series that he created for it, you know Brett, and I think lots of us feel like that we do. But just as a reminder, Brett Trapp is a consultant, a writer. He's a speaker living in Atlanta's historic Cabbage Town neighborhood, which gives me pause every time I read that. <laughs> Yeah, having never been to Atlanta, but someday I want to go and hear the story of that. But he was previously vice president of client experience for Boosterthon Fun Run, which is an innovative school fundraising company based out of Atlanta. In late 2016, Brett launched Blue Babies Pink, a 44-episode journey through faith, sexuality, shame, loneliness, singleness, and emotional health. Then in 2017, he released the series as a podcast, which hit number one in iTunes religion and spirituality category and made the list of top 50 of podcasts worldwide. Blue Baby's Pink podcast episodes have been downloaded over 700,000 times. Brett is also passionate about storytelling and leadership and good design, antiques, Seth Godin, SEC football, trips <laughs> to Europe, archaeology, Chick-fil-A, and Taylor Swift. Brett... Welcome to Sort of Awesome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I remember last year when the Sort of Awesome podcast mentioned Blue Baby's Pink, and all of a sudden I started getting all kinds of notifications from people I didn't know, uh, who I later <laughs> learned were called the Awesomes, which is awesome, letting me know that they were listening to the podcast. So that was really cool. Yes. Yes. We were so excited when Kelly brought your work to the show. So many people have loved it so much since then. And I have to say, I really love that in your bio that you have that you're passionate about storytelling because you, sir, are quite the awesome storyteller. In fact, Blue Baby's Pink has been called the Netflix of blogs, and that is not an exaggeration, you guys. The way Brett unravels the story of his life is a total page turner. And so if y'all are in a little bit of a reading rut or maybe you need a new podcast to kind of binge listen to, once you start with Blue Baby's Pink, you will not be able to put it down until you get to the end. Kelly, wasn't that your experience with it too? Oh, yeah, for sure. Because what I had the experience of was reading it. Yes. I think that I actually discovered somewhere, Brett, I don't even remember, the blog before the podcast came out. So I was in the middle of reading it when the podcast came out. And really, for me, it was not only binge-worthy, but it was also so good, I didn't want it to end. So I kind of would go, okay, you have to pace yourself. You can read three chapters now, and then you have to go make dinner. You know, like I wanted it. It's that sort of a good experience. So whether you listen to it or read it, it is, like you said, Meg, really all-encompassing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You're good at that storytelling thing, I have to tell you. I'm sure many people have told you that, too. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. You know, everybody gets something different from Blue Baby's Pink. One of my favorite bits of feedback is when people just say, it was fun. I enjoyed reading it. You know, I cried. I laughed a little yeah. bit. I was an English major in college, which is, you know, is kind of a derided degree in college. You know, it's notorious for being, you know, tough to find a job. But I left college in 2005, went into kind of the marketing and business world. And so I always kind of fancied myself as a writer. But truth be told, all I wrote for a decade was emails, you know, and internal company memos. And so for me, Blue Baby's Pink was sort of my first, you know, putting my toe back into the water of writing, you know, something kind of more on the creative side. 
And I didn't know if I still had it, if I had what it took. And so it's been really, really fulfilling to hear so many people be positive about how much they enjoyed it. So that's been fun. Love that. Well, I love how in the beginning chapters of the story, you really talk a lot about youth group culture in the 90s for you, but it was really reflective of my experience of youth group. I just was like, did are we live in the same life? It was just yeah. like, oh my gosh. And I'm Kelly, I'm sure you can say the same. It resonates oh my goodness. so much. I was just such a youth group kid that there were so many things that you said, Brett. And I think that that's true. What you said, it was a fun read because you brought things back to mind that I hadn't thought about in years. Yeah. You know, whether it was see at the poll or group names or things that you just brought back. And I thought, wow, we really have this shared experience. It's such, in some ways, a subculture, maybe a small subculture, even in the grander scheme of life, but it is a very intense one. Yeah. Yeah. Nostalgia is a powerful principle. You know, we all love Everybody loves reminiscing on, you know, whatever happened to them 10, 20, 30 years ago. And that was fun to kind of play around with some of those old memories of youth group and high school, you know, ministry conferences back in the 90s. It was fun. Definitely, definitely. Well, I definitely got a kick out of that. When you wrote the chapter about your father passing away, I had to stop and boohoo, just completely cry for a while. It was so beautifully, powerfully written. But I want to cover a few of the key sort of like chapters, sort of the turning point chapters from Blue Baby's Pink. I do not want to spoil it for anybody who has not gotten to experience it yet for themselves, but there is one chapter that was just so profound to me, such a height of the storytelling as you unravel the story for us. And that's the chapter that you titled Getting Real in London. And this is the moment when you decided to come out to your best friend, Chris, and you guys had been traveling through Europe and it had been a great trip, but you talked about how the anxiety was kind of growing as you knew you wanted to share this with him, but trying to get the nerve up and to just say it. And in fact, you wrote, it's always awkward and the timing is never right. There's no natural, awkward, free transition from, man, this football game is great to, by the way, I'm super gay, <laughs> which I had to giggle <laughs> over that line. But so... You tell the story of coming out to Chris, and I was wondering if you can kind of take us back to that moment of some of the things that you were experiencing, some of your hopes for that conversation, some of your fears, and just kind of walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, to give a little context, you mentioned earlier, you know, Blue Baby's Pink is 44 different chapters. Each chapter takes about 10 minutes to read or listen to for the podcast. The episode you're referencing occurs right about the middle of the story, episode 20 or 25, somewhere in that range. But yeah, so the story I tell was, technically it was the second time I'd come out to anyone, but this was kind of the first time in several years and my first close friend, someone who was kind of in my social orbit. And so at this time I was in my late 20s, I was sort of a workaholic, had sort of submerged myself in work to sort of run from the sexuality thing, because in my mind at the time, I just thought, you know, this is not okay. God is not okay with homosexuality and this is not something I can pursue, but I was getting to a place where I had to talk about it, you know? A lot of us live these secret lives in our heads, and all of us have something in our mind that consumes our thoughts. And at times, if we let it, those thoughts can become toxic. And so, you know, I'm a big believer that the more we can talk about that stuff, give voice to those internal stories, that's kind of the beginning of healing. So that's what this was about. Went to Europe for a few days and a couple of weeks, actually, Chris and I went to London. We go into a bar called Yield Cheshire Cheese, which is a, <laughs> a great name for bar. It is arguably the oldest bar in all of London. I think it was built in the 1600s. And so, oh, wow. yeah, yeah. So pretty kind of historic. And so I, you have to understand my mindset. I was completely terrified, completely terrified of telling anybody this secret because our secrets can control us. Mine had controlled me my entire life. And, you know, there's just this fear of if someone knows, you know, what will that cost me? 
you know, there's a fear. I had a fear of just losing everything. I mean, I was going through to the thoughts of, okay, well, what if I lose this friendship? Or what if I, you know, tell somebody at work and that costs me my job in some bizarre way? You know, so really a lot of times LGBT people, we play out a sort of an apocalypse in our minds, you know, and the secret was so strong and so intense that I just thought, Brett, this could be it. And so I had incredible, incredible anxiety about that first conversation. And really, I kind of viewed this as Chris was kind of my trial run. I think I mentioned in Blue Baby's Pink, a lot of gay people, we keep a list of like the safest people in our lives. Yes. You know, and by safe, I mean, who are the people that when you show your soul to, they won't judge? Absolutely. You know, who are the people that are still going to be there when the whole world blows up? And all of us have those friends. Sure. And so for me, I think Chris was kind of my number one draft pick. He was the one I thought, you know what? I feel like if there's anybody that's not going to freak out, it's not going to abandon me. It's got to be my best friend from college, Chris. Chris is six foot six, real skinny and kind of gangly. I call him Gumby sometimes, kind of a goofy <laughs> guy, but just got a heart of gold. And so, yeah, I finally did it. And I finally came out that night and, you know, told Chris, I, at the time I said, I'd deal with same sex attraction. I never would have called myself gay back then. And so Chris was so incredibly loving and so kind in that moment just to say that, you know, this didn't change much and how he still loved me and how he, you know, was excited to just kind of keep our friendship moving forward. And that seems so silly looking back now that I expected him to have a terrible reaction. But in the moment, that was one tiny little step towards healing and sort of the unraveling of all of this anxiety I had around this one particular topic in my life. Yeah, I loved that chapter. You do a great job of really capturing the range of emotions that you were feeling going into that conversation. And I think it is so powerful because many of us who are listening have already at some point in our lives found ourselves as a trusted friend who somebody feels comfortable coming out to, maybe not the very first or second, but that's a moment. In fact, my daughter, who is 13 in the seventh grade, has already had a friend come out to her. And then she sort of like mentioned it to me nonchalantly, like, oh, yeah, he's gay. He told me. And I was like, wait, stop, hold everything. He came out to you in conversation. And I was like trying to help her understand, like, he must really trust you and value your friendship that you have built. And so I love that story because I, of course, as a straight and cisgender woman, am experiencing it on the receiving end of someone coming out. But now as a parent... I think about the context, especially, Brett, of your journey, because you trace it from childhood all the way through adulthood. And so I think about it from a parent's perspective that a lot of times it seems like, in my experience with my friends who are gay, that the parent conversation is not necessarily the first one that happens. So right. I thought that that was really powerful, the way you kind of trace through even just the timeline of who you chose to come out to, who you felt safe coming out right. to, and when. Right. And Meg, as you know, I work with parents now of LGBT kids. I have an organization, or not really an organization, a website called Harbor, sort of an online curriculum for particularly conservative to moderate parents of LGBT kids. And so many of them, you know, in surveys, so many of them have told me in person, Brett, you know, I'm so sad my child didn't tell me sooner, yes. you know. And that's a very common reaction. I mean, it's almost universal because I think parents are instantly stung by a little bit of guilt of this sort of self-introspection of what's wrong with me. Why didn't my child feel more safe? Right. I always have to reassure them to say, you know what, that is totally normal. It's not personal at all. It's not a reflection on the person you are. The reality is sometimes, you know, when you get into adolescence, you get into young adulthood, you're just closer at that season of life with some of your really good friends. And so for me, I wanted to tell my mom, and that was sort of on the agenda a few months later, 
But for me, I needed to kind of have a really safe space to have that first conversation that I knew would go well. I just needed a little confidence. You know, when you've lived under sort of this concrete ceiling of shame, self-doubt, I would even say self-hatred, your confidence just gets obliterated. And so for me, each conversation, I gained a little bit more confidence to step into that reality a little bit more. And wouldn't it maybe even be true that sometimes those parental relationships are the hardest to risk? So it isn't that you don't love that person. It's almost like this is almost too scary. I need to venture out here with somebody who is not only safe, but that somebody who isn't so, so close as I'm trying to rebuild that confidence. Because I feel like as I read Blue Baby's Pink, what I loved is that we had those 20 chapters prior to that with you, Brett, as you built up that tension of the secrecy and you kind of learning to be honest with yourself first, learning to be honest with maybe a counselor, with anybody. And then this is kind of the first time that really you're venturing out into the real world. It's a make or break sort of moment. You know, I could only imagine if that had not gone well, how that could have been really a big setback for so many things. So to just be aware of what our gay friends are going through as they're living those 20 chapters prior you know, however long that might be in their life, how that tension and that kind of agony is really real with, you know, the fear, like all the things you just said, the self-confidence. So then we can be in a more compassionate place as we listen and honor that. Right. It all comes down to a fear of loss. Mm -hmm. It's the fear of what am I going to lose if this person walks away, if this person turns on me. And so this is why I often said the parent conversation is the hardest conversation mm, because, right. you know, particularly the younger you are, the more control, the more leverage your parents have over you financially, relationally, all those kind of things. And so you're really, you're playing out this game, this really tragic and torturous game in your mind of what if it goes poorly? What if it's the worst possible scenario? How do I pay the bills? How do I pay for college? You know, these are the questions that people have and that's terribly traumatic. Because at the end of the day, as you guys know, you know, the parent relationship has to be secure. It's got to be safe. That's one of the keys to emotional health for anybody, particularly those in high school or younger. One of the advantages I had was I waited till later in life to kind of take that risk. And you could call it an advantage. I would call it sort of just being crippled by fear. But, you know, when I had that conversation, I was in a really independent state, which made it a little bit safe. Yes. Right. So I'm just going to say taking all of these experiences, not only yours, but the ones you've heard since then, what would be good for people to keep in mind if they do have a friend that's coming out to them? Like, what is the headspace for us to be in that conversation, to listen and receive? If we're not a parent, we're a friend. You know, there's the parent component, which is a little separate. Yeah. The tough thing about this question I've always said is that a coming out is almost always an ambush. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning it almost yeah. always takes the other person by surprise, right? You don't call your mom, you know, and say, hey, mom, next month I'm going to come to your house and we're going to have a really tough conversation. Get ready. You know, like right. it's just an easy way to freak your mom out, you know? <laughs> so yeah. it kind of has to be a surprise. And so this is why you have to be prepared. And that's why I love the question you just asked. You know, I think the first rule when someone comes out to you is just the first thing to think of is do no harm in that conversation. Do no harm. And I know people who have been deeply wounded by that first conversation. I have a friend and his mom told him, honey, I would rather you have told me you had a brain tumor. Oh, gosh. You know? Yeah. And she can't take that back, you know, and that Right. Even always... if she changes her mind later, you know, exactly. like those words live 
they live. You're exactly right. You know, another story I heard very recently was a guy and he came out to his parents and they told him, okay, we still love you, but we're going to have to love you from a distance, (laughs) which is another really common sort of thing. And so you cannot take those words back. So I often say, you know, if anything, just don't talk, you know, but I would say once that conversation ensues, you know, I would say even stop the conversation, give that person a hug. You've got to realize you're talking to someone in one of their most fearful and vulnerable moments of their entire life, most likely, depending on where they're coming from. So I would stop, hug them, and then let them continue. At this point, I'm an advocate of just shutting up, you know, just listen. There's a good chance this person has kept this story inside and they are eager to get that out. They're eager to share with you the details. And maybe they're not. Maybe they just want to share a little bit and move on. But obviously that's contextual. But once it's over, tell them that you love them. Remind them that you love them. That's the first thing they need to hear. Remind them that that will never change no matter what, you know. But one thing I'm not a fan of is a lot of people said this to me. I had many coming out conversations. Yes, yes. A lot of people will say, they'll say, well, I want you to know this doesn't change anything. Well, Uh, that's not totally true because, and their intent is good with saying that. Right. But the reality is it does change something. The relationship has changed. And really it's sort of a paradox. You know, one dad told me, he said, when our daughter came out to us, Everything had changed and nothing had changed. Right, right. <laughs> you know, what he meant by that was in one sense, our daughter is still our daughter. And the 20 years of history we have with her is the same. But moving forward, everything is going to be a little bit different. Right. So I'm a fan of, of trying to upset if you can. The second thing, don't talk about theology. I mentioned this in an episode of Blue Baby's Pink called Lifeboats. You know, I say there will be a time to talk about theology. But in that moment when this child is very vulnerable, that's probably not the best time to open up the Bible and start going through what God may believe about the topic. Here's the reality. Your child already knows your theology. If they've lived under your roof for 15, 20, 30 years, they probably already have a good sense on your theology around this topic. And then I think the third don't would be don't make it about you. A lot of parents do that because the coming out often feels to a parent like an assault To be honest, I would almost describe it as a traumatic moment for a lot of parents because suddenly this parent's parenting is brought into question. One of the first questions most parents ask themselves is, what did I do wrong? You know, which is not a good question because obviously most, hopefully your listeners know that homosexuality does not develop from poor parenting. That's not where it comes from. But oftentimes because the parent feels so assaulted in this moment, they feel like a victim. And victims will often, they have to make it about them because they feel victimized. They want to heal. They want to move forward. And so I would just encourage parents to really resist that as hard as they can. And then kind of the last thought, once the conversation is over, you've kind of not done those bad things. What really matters is the follow-up. And I would say, guys, this is true for any tough conversation. Forget sexuality. Anytime a friend confides in you something that is painful or secretive, something they've been covered up, something that's full of shame, the follow-up is really important. So I have told our parents in the group that I lead, I say, you know what, after that happens, you need to text messages fine. Maybe it's later that night, maybe it's the next day, maybe it's the next week, but you need to, number one, affirm them for being honest. Mm -hmm. Thank them for their vulnerability. You need to celebrate the fact that they had the courage to do that. Because what you're doing is you're letting the child know that, hey, you know, things are going to be okay, right? Because maybe this child has played out this worst case doomsday scenario 
they need to be reassured that mom is still there, dad is still there, and they need to be celebrated in the fact that, hey, what you did, that really hard thing that you did was good. And not only was it good, we're thankful for it. You know, In fact, we're going to celebrate it. We need more conversations in our family that are this vulnerable and this honest. I would even recommend you know, take the child out to dinner the next day and celebrate. Go to a fancy restaurant. Do something that lets them know, again, this is not about theology. This is not about, quote unquote, affirming the gay lifestyle. This is simply about recreating and reestablishing that foundation, that bedrock of love that every parent ought to extend to their child no matter what. Right. You're really affirming the relationship. If you do something to celebrate it, you're affirming their vulnerability, their honesty. And who wouldn't want to honor that? Absolutely. Exactly. And that kind of, I just wanted to touch back a little bit on what you said about the phrase, nothing has changed. And I can see how, you know, like you said, prior to a coming out conversation, there's probably lots of imagined conversations going on. And so here they've come and they've just laid it on the table. And the thing that has changed is that now they are trusting you to experience them in their whole self. So for them, everything has changed. They are hoping and, of course, wanting, I would imagine, for the relationship to still be there. But they can now live out the fullness of their identity in that whatever that relationship may be, whether it's parenting or friend or whatever. So that just really stuck with me because I would think back over past conversations. I'm sure I have said that, too, with the best of intentions. Mm -hmm. But now I'm really listening and hearing how that would hit somebody who's really been, like, contemplating how is the dynamic going to change here once I show up as my full self in this relationship? Right. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, guys, a lot of gay people feel disgusting. Mm. And that's a dramatic statement. It's not for everybody, but many of us do. I felt that way because I grew up in a culture that had created so much taboo and negative energy around that topic. I mean, in the American South, there's almost nothing worse than being gay. At least that's how it was when I was growing up. And so I carried this sort of cloak of disgust. And this is why I kept it hidden. And so in the coming out moment, what you're doing is you're revealing the thing that you feel makes you disgusting. Mm. It's sort of an old fashioned, you know, sort of like leprosy in the Bible. I mean, that's how intense it can feel. And so I've often said, when you reveal that you're looking at the person across the table, sort of studying their reaction, and you're looking to see, is this person disgusted? You know, Mm. are they leaning in towards me or are they recoiling in horror? And so this is why, you know, your reaction in this moment is so important and in the following days and weeks, because that was often a fear was, okay, maybe so-and-so will tell you they loved you in that moment, but then the proof is in the pudding a week later, a month later, six months later, are they still there? Are they still present or have they drawn away? And that's really powerful when someone has not, they don't draw away. And in fact, they come closer to you and they lean in. I was very blessed that I had a lot of people do that. And I'm super Mm -hmm. thankful for those folks. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Definitely. Well, I want to kind of pick up that same thread because you have talked about how now part of the work that you are feeling called to do in in a space that you're stepping into is conversations with parents who are navigating this new dynamic with their children. And I would imagine that part of that is listening to people who are struggling. They're living in a tension of how do I reconcile this reality for my child specifically, many of us can apply this to friendship context as well, this reality of who they are, how do I reconcile it with my belief system, 
which says that this, you know, whatever, we can use whatever verbiage, but basically that, you know, sort of rejects this orientation, rejects this manifestation of who they are. There's a tension there. They want to be loving, but they don't know what it looks like if they're trying to navigate how to live in alignment with their beliefs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, and I know you're just speaking from your perspective and thinking about the stories that you've heard and the people that you know and that you've worked with. So, of course, we're sort of painting with broad strokes here, but I would love to hear your feedback on that. I love this question, Meg. This is something I'm extremely passionate about. You know, I have so many good friends still who are on what is typically called the non-affirming side of this issue, meaning they do not believe that the Bible or that God can affirm any version of a same-sex relationship. I have tons of friends that I still I'm close with, that I live in community with. Uh, As a matter of fact, my own mother is that way. My mom is an incredible person. We're very close. She has been by my side from day one, but she has been very clear to say, you know, Brett, I love you. I love the person you're with. But because of my beliefs on this, I cannot affirm or validate that. So let me be real honest here. It is possible. It is certainly possible to hold that traditional viewpoint and still love LGB people well, but it is very difficult. It's very, very hard. And let me explain why. You've got to keep in mind, this whole issue has been framed as sort of something that affects all of society. You know, from day one, when this conversation flared up, particularly in the 80s with the moral majority and Jerry Falwell, and kind of the homosexual issue really got pushed to the mainstream, the front of the mainstream, to the culture wars, it was framed as the ultimate sign of cultural decay that's going to really take all of us down, take the whole country down. The reality is that's not true. This issue really only affects LGBT people. If you're straight and if you're on the traditional side of this, you've got to first accept that, that hear me say, I think it's fine for anyone to have an opinion or theological stance on the LGBT thing, but you've got to kind of accept that for us, for those of us, typically we think statistically three to 5% of the human population is on the LGBT spectrum. So there's 97% out there who have strong feelings about this issue. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really affect them, right? I mean, my gay relationship, my future gay marriage is just not going to have that big of an effect, if any effect at all, on your marriage or straight relationship. And so I think that's where this conversation often breaks down is that people come into it very staunch, very loud with these strong opinions. And I'm thinking, you know, This doesn't really affect you that much. And it affects me every single day. It's the world, the body that I live in. My point, to answer your question, if you're going to hold that view, I would just challenge you to counterbalance that with an incredible amount of love. Mm. You know, and this is the way of Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus, we've heard this a million times. Jesus hung out on the margins. He hung out with those that were despised, those who were the minorities of the day, those who had no clout, had no position, you know, in the Roman Empire. And he was the one that hanging out with them. And yes, he spoke truth to them, but he was present. I think he led with a lot of love, a lot of presence. So I would just challenge you, you know, if you're that way, get close to LGBT people. Don't be scared. Invite them over for dinner. Invite them out for coffee. Ask them questions. Listen, you know, send them an encouraging note. You need to have some kind of physical presence in their life. Jesus was physically present with those on the edges of society. He wasn't grossed out. He wasn't disgusted. He wasn't trying to take a stand for truth and letting them know what he believed about their thing. You know, it's what my mom says. And listen, my relationship with my mom is strong. It was very, very poor years ago because we struggled with this a lot. Because in my own insecurity, there was a season I went through, I was desperately wanting her to validate me. 
and I wasn't getting it. And I got very angry about that. And so, you know, my mom now very simply says, she's a very conservative person. I love her to death, but she says, it's not my job to judge. It's my job to love. Mm, yes. Yes. And that is it's cliche, right? We've heard little tropes like that a million times, but when you really think about that and you examine scripture, if you're looking for calls to judge, you're not going to really find it. We are called to love on this side of heaven and God will sort out the rest on that side. And at the end of the day, I've often said, you know, I'm in a place now where I'm no longer craving the validation or affirmation from anybody else regarding my life, my sexuality, or my relationship. Because at the end of the day, I'm accountable to God. And that's right. between me and him. And, you know, as long as I'm not out harming other people, this really doesn't affect anybody else but me. And so that's been incredibly freeing for me to just recalibrate my walk with God to say, Brett, this is between you and the Lord. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people aren't going to agree. And I'm okay with that. This is why I don't, you know, I try not to ever hold people hostage to say, you better agree with me and you better affirm and validate me or else, you know. And there's a lot of that. You know, there's a lot of that that goes on in our culture with the culture wars and with the amount of anger and negativity that exists around this topic. I've just said, I'm not going to play that game. I want to immerse and submerge myself in the forgiveness, grace, and love. And that goes both ways, in my opinion. Mm. I really, I think that's so good. Yeah, We're both like, oh, let's just take a minute. Yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) Let's just take a minute because that's true. And I think that that's what came through in Blue Baby's Pink and even you saying like your relationship with your mom since then, that there was such a graciousness that we want to be able to say, look, we don't have to agree necessarily, but can we love? And can we agree, like you just said, that the judgment isn't up to us? It doesn't need to be up to us. And really, in many ways, that's freeing. Shouldn't it be freeing? Like people are not accountable to me to live by my beliefs. Like I don't have to go someday and go, well, God, Brett, you know, I, he was my friend and I didn't like, it, it's okay. I can just love. And there's an incredible freedom in that. And I do see it in the relationship that Jesus put forth in you know the gospels. So, right. so true. Yeah. You're exactly right. I mean, I've often said, you know, Kelly, I can barely manage and stress about my own life. Right. The last thing I need is to spend time and emotional energy trying to manage, judge, or stress over someone else's, right? Yep, definitely. And this is the reality of this conversation that a lot of times we get really kind of sidetracked. Right. Hey, I've got four kids. I can't even manage them. You know, like I feel more accountable for them to like be like, no, I kind of am your mom. I am here to judge you right. Right. <laughs> because they're young still. But yes, I hear what you're saying. Okay. So Meg mentioned, and you've mentioned this website that you have. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that, because I think it's such a beautiful, natural step out of Blue Baby's Pink and out of where you are today into helping families. So if there is either a friend or a parent or even maybe a college student who's listening, who's like, yeah, I'm gay and I haven't really told anybody, what are some resources that you would give people to work through some of these issues to say, hey, if I suspect I need to move forward in a relationship here and I'm not really sure where to go. What would you say? Well, I'll say this. There are lots of good resources out there. I am certainly not the only one, or I would even say the best one, but yeah, the community that I lead is called Harbor. And it's sort of loosely, again, based off of the episode called Lifeboats, which has the imagery of a child sort of crashing in on a lifeboat, coming into their parent, coming out, that kind of thing. And so what we've tried to do is to create a Harbor, a safe place for parents who have LGBT kids to find community. You know, we avoid talk of politics. We avoid all other distracting things that really say, hey, listen, you may or may not agree with where your child is on this topic, but 
we need to have the conversation about what does it look like to love your child really, really well. And the reason I started this is because I just got so exhausted hearing story after story of children and their parents whose relationships had totally exploded, totally dissolved to the point where they weren't even speaking. And you have a very wounded child and you have a very wounded parent, which is a recipe for disaster. And so what I'm trying to do is to get in between that relationship to diffuse all of that emotion and to help people understand, hey, guys, we have to learn to forge a bridge here. Because if not, it's not going to work and it's not worth it. It's not worth losing the relationship with your child over this topic. You know, the most important thing a parent can preserve with their child is influence. And so my goal is for all of the parents in Harbor to maintain influence with their children from now until one of them is gone so that they can always have a lifeline, have a connection, speak truth if possible, speak love if possible, and learn to agree to disagree, which is really, really hard. And it's something that most of us in 2018 are not really good at. Harborhere.com is the website. It's closed enrollment for now, but we'll be opening back up enrollment in several months where new parents can join. The other resource I would always recommend is a book called Torn, T-O-R-N. It's by an author named Justin Lee. Justin has been sort of in the gay Christian world for quite a while, several decades, but he used to lead the Gay Christian Network. Justin is just a fantastic person, very gracious on this topic to extend grace both ways, whether you're affirming or more traditional. It's a book that my mom read and she enjoyed it. It's just sort of an eye-opening book that helps people, helps everybody really, have a deeper level of understanding and empathy for the LGBT community. And it's not real agenda-driven, which I certainly appreciate. Two more resources. I have a friend named Susan Cottrell. Susan lives in Austin, Texas. She is a mom of two LGBT kids. She has a website called freedhearts.org. But Susan has sort of made her life mission this idea of helping parents learn to love and embrace their children despite how they may feel. And then I think the last thing I would recommend, this one is a little bit more obscure, but it's a TED Talk by a guy named Matt Nightingale. And you can actually just Google Matt Mm -hmm. Nightingale TED Talk. But Matt's a really interesting guy. Matt was in the evangelical world. I think he did ministry for a while, was married, had several kids, but was sort of hiding this secret for all of these years that he was gay. And it eventually resulted in his marriage ending. So in some ways, it's a tragic story, but his talk is interesting because he and his wife deliver the talk on stage together. And it's an incredible, incredible view of forgiveness and grace. They acknowledge how painful it has been, how she has been hurt by this. But they also talk about how they're working hard to make the best of it, to continue to love and parent their children well. So this is something that's a little controversial as far as what someone should do in that situation. But I encourage people to listen to that talk. Because what I'm hearing, guys, there are lots and lots of people, particularly men in this situation, in their 40s and their 50s. And you're going to start seeing a lot more stories like this of people and families and men who come out eventually. And it's very, very difficult. But I think we need to lead with a lot of listening and empathy to hear the stories of those folks. So those are a few resources. There are a lot more out there, but those are a few good ones. Right. Thank you for sharing those. Absolutely. We will put those in the show notes for this episode so that people can check those out. I think you're so right that listening, especially in areas where we just don't know, or even if we think we know, that it can never hurt to listen a little bit more and to go a little bit further into this conversation. Awesome. Spring is in the air. 
And I think that if you're like me, that this is the time of year when you want to spring clean and just kind of wake up from hibernation and get out there and start enjoying the world around us again. And one thing that I do not have to have on my to-do list anymore is stopping by the drugstore to pick up feminine care products. And that's because every single month, Lola sends those right to my door. This episode is sponsored by Lola, the company founded by women for women who offers 100% natural feminine care products that are 100% easy to feel good about. I love that Lola knows that all of us know our own bodies best, and so they let us pick our products. That's something the drugstore brands would never let us do. Lola lets you choose your preferred assortment. You can build your own box of products every single month. You decide how many boxes you'd like delivered right to your front door, and you can decide how often you want them shipped. You can cancel, skip an order, modify your subscription at any time. Lola always gives you a heads up by email when your boxes are about to ship. To find out more about why I'm such a huge fan of Lola, go over to mylola.com and enter promo code AWESOME40 for 40% off of your first offer. That's mylola.com and enter promo code AWESOME40, the number 4040, for 40% off of your first order with Lola. Thank you, Lola. Awesomes, when I sit down to watch a TV show as a woman and as a mother raising two daughters, I am always on the lookout for shows that feature women in strong lead roles, tackling problems while being totally relatable and also owning the awesome in every situation that they're in. That's why I am loving The Good Fight on CBS All Access. If you haven't already, you need to catch the second season of The Good Fight. It's premiering exclusively on CBS All Access. It's bringing more drama, more scandal, more Christine Baranski, and who doesn't want more of that in their life? And in season two, they're taking the show to a whole new level. If you missed the March 4th premiere of season two, or if you're still trying to catch up on season one, you need to get CBS All Access and tune into The Good Fight so that you can discover the drama, the excitement, and the show that everyone is talking about with amazing, strong female characters who are leading the way with incredible storytelling every week. And it's only on CBS All Access. So hurry to cbs.com slash awesome for your free trial of CBS All Access and tune into season two of the critically acclaimed show, The Good Fight. That's cbs.com slash awesome for your free trial of CBS All Access. Thank you to CBS and thank you to The Good Fight. I love so much that you have really put yourself into this conversation and helping reconcile kids and parents to help navigate this dynamic together. And Kelly and I have talked about this quite a bit, especially since we experienced Blue Babies Pink, that the cultural environment now, because we're both parents of teenagers, and so we see this beginning to unfold in the lives of our children and their friends, we've noticed that the cultural environment that we have right now for teens, for young adults, it's so different from, certainly from Kelly and I's teen years, and I would imagine from your teen and young adult years as well, it does seem like there's more freedom for young people today to really explore this issue of orientation, which again, they see my oldest being in seventh grade, it seems like, wow, that seems really early. But one of my dearest friends in the world is a gay man who, in talking about this, has said, I mean, since I was five. So seventh grade seems like when you're a parent, you're like, oh, this is very early. But for the kids who are having these conversations with their friends, it may feel like finally, after all these years, I can you know, to talk to my friends about this. So 
seems like there's more freedom now. When you started Blue Babies Pink, I love this story. When you started Blue Babies Pink, it was a note in your phone that you originally had titled Unfreedom and kind of shortened that and made all of these notes through the years into what eventually became the work that we know is Blue Babies Pink. But so there's that contrast between the freedom that we're kind of beginning to see now compared to the sort of unfreedom in past you know, cultural context. And I'm just wondering, as you kind of watch this begin to unfold, in what ways do you see this as being a healthy thing? And in what ways do you see that there's some potential pitfalls for a different cultural context on this? Yes, yeah, so I'll start by saying, I always clarify, I am not a psychologist. I am not a sex therapist. Sure. And my opinion is the opinion of yes. an amateur, but I have talked, and I do have the experience of having hundreds of conversations mm-hmm. with all types of LGBT people. So I do bring that to the conversation. But you know, I think what you're describing, Meg, is here's how I look at it. You know, since the dawn of time, LGBT people have sort of been locked in the basement of culture, <laughs> meaning all of culture has been existing up on the ground, up on land. Lots of fun things have been happening. But for most of history, the LGBT folks have been underground because it hasn't been safe to come out to talk about sexuality, that kind of thing. And so what we're beginning to see is that door has come open. And people are starting to literally come out of the closet. And so this conversation is now becoming mainstream, which for a lot of my more conservative friends is a very scary and potentially, you know, culture, you know, a terrible cultural thing, which I would not totally agree with that. But I think to understand this, you've got to first clarify the terms. And this is really important. There's a huge difference in orientation versus behavior. Okay. Mm -hmm. So same sex behavior versus sexual orientation. Most of your listeners probably know this, but you've got to think of orientation as being on a spectrum. It is not a binary. It is not there are only gay people and there are only straight people, right? Bisexuality is a thing. And I don't know that I always believed that until I met many bisexual people who authentically describe that as their true experience. You know, one guy that I met through Blue Baby Spink, he describes his sexual. He doesn't even know how to describe his sexuality, but he says, I think I'm somewhere between bisexual and gay. Mm -hmm. You know, so he was even aware of like, I'm mostly attracted to guys, but every now and then I've been attracted and aroused by females, you know? And so we've got to kind of recalibrate how we think about this. But yeah, what you're describing, we are definitely, it seems like we're seeing more experimentation of same sex behavior. Again, orientation at the high school, middle school level. I had one mom email me and she said, Brett, in my daughter's middle school, it's sort of in vogue to experiment with other girls, you know? And that was kind of the first time that kind of came on my radar. But, you know, 30 years ago, we didn't have Katy Perry singing songs, I Kissed a Girl and I Liked It, you know? Like, it's become more mainstream. It's entered the mainstream cultural vernacular. And so, therefore, kids are more aware, I would say probably for the first time in humanity's history, kids are aware that there are other orientations. There are people who are gay, people who are straight. Can this be unhealthy? Absolutely. Listen, I'm not a parent, but I don't think middle school or high school kids should be getting naked and having any kind of sex of any kind in any context, right? I mean, that's just probably terrifying to parents. And I'm sure that was the concern of parents 20 years ago, 200 years ago, 2000 years ago. This is not a new parents worrying about their kids sleeping with other people is certainly not a new thing. So yes, I do think that there probably is more sexual experimentation of the same-sex variety, but we don't have evidence that that is going to change someone's sexual orientation. And this is rooted in just the very basic belief that a lot of people still hold that people are out there choosing to be gay. 
that people are out there choosing to be transgender, that people are out there being seduced away from their God-given heterosexuality into homosexuality. As you guys know, I wrote about this in Blue Baby's Pink. The last thing that I ever wanted was to be gay. My entire world was straight. You know, for me, being gay was a horrible, horrible death sentence is what it felt like for many years. And so I don't think there's a lot of worry or fear around, you know, kids, their orientation being manipulated through sexual experimentation. But it definitely is a thing and it seems to be potentially happening more frequently. And I think that for teenagers in particular, but like you said, it's just one of those things, right? When something good happens in culture, sometimes there are ramifications as we work it out that fall into the cracks. And I think that especially for teenagers, especially right now, since it is not only, like you said, out of the closet, out from the underground, but it's a little bit edgy, Mm. you know, in that sense of like, oh, but you know, all my, the cool people are gay or bi or, you know, very affirming. And so like, oh yeah, maybe I want to try that on. And so it does maybe as a parent feel like, wow, like that wasn't a thing when I was in high school, but it's just a part of our culture kind of coming to terms with this new reality of, you know, what freedom means to so many people, you know, it does mean that then as it trickles down and we figure out how to process it, you know, like you said, I think for me as a parent, I kind of think, I wish that in middle school and high school, we could say, Hey, look, this sexuality game is such a big deal. It would be great. You've got so many other things going on right now. If we could acknowledge it, and kind of just say, let's put it over there for a little bit, because you're just trying to figure out all this other stuff. You know, your hormones are still raging. You're growing. You've got school. You have sports. You have all these things going on. Like this one is such a big deal. But of course, you know, since probably the dawn of time, 13 year olds have said, I have all grown up by myself. Thank you very much. I can figure this out. I can play in that right. pool, you know, sort of thing. So really, like you said, not a whole lot has changed, but yet some has changed. So just being able to say, hey, it's okay. It's a little different. Every generation is different than the one before. And um, so what's going on in their middle school is different than what's going on in my middle school. What went on in my middle school is different than what went on in my parents' middle school. And we'll make it. The important thing is that relationship, right? So it kind of goes back to what you were saying before. Absolutely. Open conversations, honesty. I'm just such a believer in more transparency around this topic between particularly parents and kids because there's a lot of cultural messages out there, many of them that are toxic, and we need parents leading strong and leading that conversation before the culture has a chance to be too loud. Right, right, right. Yeah, and these are years, too, when it can feel, I mean, regardless of the issue, these are the years, middle school through, the, especially those early high school years, when the conversations get tough. You have to be, like, really intentional because they're not coming to you to be like, Mom, Dad, let's sit down and talk about all of these <laughs> things. You really have to pursue your kids extra hard, I feel like, during this time where that's what I'm learning anyway, day by day. Before we wrap up, Brett, you guys, if you don't follow Brett on social media already, I really encourage you to. You have... What is wrong with you? I mean, honestly. <laughs> following Brett Trapp on social media. Awesome. This is a major deficit, if that is you. (laughs) Talk about such a fun and just like life-affirming, beautiful balance between like serious stuff, but also so much fun that you're having. In fact, we need to talk about for just a hot minute here that when you left off that closing chapter in Blue Baby's Pink, you were just starting to experience dating. And I, again, I don't want to spoil it for everyone because the journey to Brett making that decision to put himself out there in the dating thing, you've got to read it for yourself. But now, Brett... Wedding bells are ringing. You're going to be married very soon, right? That is true. I am betrothed. I am engaged to be married to a man who's 
ironically, his name is also Brett. <laughs> and we've been dating about two and a half years, and it has just been the just sweetest thing in the entire world. I cannot even describe how much joy he has brought me and being in a healthy relationship for the first time. And I dated for a few years and really hated it, did not like the gay dating scene, whatever you want to call it. Most of it is app driven, you know, it's technology now. And so I did not do well because I did not understand gay culture. I did not understand how that worked. I was not a part of that world for my entire life. And so, you know, I had just nearly given up, but I matched with this guy on one of those apps and this good looking guy standing on a beach was his picture from Alabama. Name was Brett. And took me about a month to convince him to go on a date with me, but he finally did. And, and we're just so happy and so thankful and grateful. Neither of us ever in a million years dreamed that this would happen. We met with the officiant of our wedding recently, and I said, you know, most people when they get married, this is the fulfillment of a dream they had for most of their lives. I said, for us, it's not that way. Mm, you know, we never had this dream. We were expecting to be alone for our entire lives. And so I think our joy is in some ways tenfold because we remember what it was like to be running from love. We remember what it was like to be so crushingly lonely and sad and to think that that was going to be our forever was to be destined to a life of loneliness. And so we're just so thankful, you know, we're just so grateful for each other and we're both learning how to love another person. We're both deprogramming and detoxing from our years of narcissistic singleness that we both embraced and we're learning to live with another person, you know, that's on the horizon as well. So yeah, it's been a really fun season, but the wedding is coming up soon. So we're just up to our ears in wedding planning <laughs> and dealing with a healthy amount of drama as one could expect, but oh boy, the blessings outweigh the challenges and we're just super thankful. Yeah. Well, yes. And I was going to say, just speaking of your social media that you have shared some really profound, just, you know, little glimpses, but some profound things that you've been learning along the way in your, you know, sort of that pre-marriage counseling that lots of us engage in. And it sounds like you have a very firm foundation already. So I just wish you guys all the best. And again, if you want to follow along, Brett, we'll share his social media here in just a minute. But before we let you go, I have some just like lightning round questions that I'm I love it. Let's dying go. to ask you, especially a lot of these came to mind as I was reading. I was like, oh, I wonder what this. So you mentioned you're a big Taylor Swift fan. I mean, like what is your go-to this is my go-to Taylor Swift that I always keep in my back pocket. Listen, Taylor Swift peaked with the album 1989. Yes. I mean, it's just one yeah. of the best. I, yep. I've often said I love good books and bad music. And not to say that it's bad music, but that is just a pure pop pure album. Pop. It I is. mean, you know, you can sing every song yep. and the song Shake It Off. I mean, Brett and I have considered coming down the aisle to shake it off. I mean, that's how great of a song it is. And that's one of those songs, like, when it comes on, all of your problems melt away, and yep. you're just yep. transported to Taylor's world for a couple of minutes. So, yeah, Shake It Off is definitely the best the best song, in my opinion. Love it. Love it. Okay, now, you also are a big fan of C.S. Lewis. I mean, this is really deep, weighty, intellectual stuff. So, what's your... so there's the good book. Yeah, We're exactly. Going yeah, like, exactly. Cheesy music, go. good books. That's how I live my life. What's your favorite C.S. Lewis? I have to know. Well, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is obviously a classic you know, novel. But for me, there was a book I read in high school called The Weight of Glory, which is probably one of his more popular books. But that was just a book that really challenged my view of God. And C.S. Lewis was a wordsmith. I love people who are just masters of the language. And there are just some passages in that book that will take your breath away, you know, that they're just so beautifully written. And so Weight of glory. If you haven't checked it out, you might want to pick it up. 
Definitely. Okay. As a good Southern person, a good dweller of the South, you also love Chick-fil-A. <laughs> Christian uh, chicken. Yep. <laughs> a Christian chicken as it's popularly known. When you are pulling through the drive-thru and grabbing your favorite Chick-fil-A, that's their pleasure to serve it to you, Brett. What is your favorite go-to Chick-fil-A order? Well, old Brett, who was not in great shape and eating really <laughs> terrible things, was definitely a number one, which you Chick-fil-A fans know is the oh, chicken yeah. sandwich, fries, you know, Coke or whatever. <laughs> but my new love at Chick-fil-A is the Southwest salad. You guys had this? Oh, I have not. Kelly, have you? Okay. This is where I'm going to lean into the microphone and just whisper. We just got Chick-fil-A in Minneapolis like this last year. What? Uh, well, welcome so, to the other side. Right. So there <laughs> is now a Chick-fil-A within, you know, 20 to 30 minutes of me. So I have wow. not had, so do tell, Brett, I have had Chick-fil-A before, but it has not been a part of my daily uh-huh. experience. Oh, yeah. A part of the heathen, you know, northern <laughs> I know, I know. The heathen northerners. Well, Kelly, you are in for a treat. You need to make that 30-minute trek at least once a week for the first year, maybe twice. Yeah, well, my sister she, thinks so. She lives here, but she's a huge Chick-fil-A fan. So she's always like, what? You got to come down. It's kids eat free. It's cow day. What's the cow day? But I'm like, uh-huh. I, I don't know, Emily. Chipotle's right here is how I feel. Chipotle's so, anyway, delicious. Yeah, so Chick-fil-A sauce. There's your first insider tip. It's just called Chick-fil-A sauce. I want you to go order anything on the menu and then ask for three Chick-fil-A sauces. I will go and tell you the Chick-fil-A sauces are not the most healthy thing that they have, but it is the most (laughs) delicious sauce you could imagine. And then the Southwest salad, separate from the sauce. That's my love language these days. People can show me love by buying me Southwest salads. That's how I experience (laughs) love. So what's in it? Is it oh, grilled chicken so, or fried chicken? Oh, it's grilled chicken, so it's it's fairly healthy. It's got grilled chicken. It's got a few little tortilla strips on top, some pepitas. It's got some tomatoes, and then you have this incredible roster of dressings you can get. And so, you know, get a healthy dressing, get an unhealthy one, doesn't matter. It's delicious either way. Okay. All right. I know this one speaking to you. Kelly is our mostly healthy eating person around here, although she has been known to serve up some to die for cookie recipes, so. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, having a place that you can go as a drive through but still get something healthy. Yes. Yes. I love food in general, but like that's what I mean. I might make the drive. Yes, definitely. Okay. Last one that I have to ask you. You mentioned a couple of times through Blueberries Pink how much you love a good cocktail. And I will say cheers to that. I'm sure you've Mm. had favorites through different phases of life. But right now in this moment, what's your favorite cocktail? So this is an easy question. I'm a bourbon guy through and through and every bourbon lover. Most bourbon lovers love old fashions. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. So an old fashioned, if you don't know, it's made of bourbon, bitters, simple syrup, and then a little orange twist. I think it was invented by like in Kentucky in the 1800s. But oh man, it's just, it's delicious. It's a little taste of heaven. You can bury me with an old, old fashioned in my hand and I, <laughs> that would be fitting. So are you going to have those at your wedding? Because both Meg and I have said, you know, we got married so long ago. It was before Pinterest. It was before you had to have your own hashtag, <laughs> your own cocktail gifts Uh for people who came to your wedding. I really want to say bless you, sir, for having to get married in this age to some degree. So are you going to give everybody an old fashioned at your wedding? Pinterest is very magical. We actually discussed this recently. We would like to do old fashions. The problem is a really good old fashioned is not quick to make. Oh, that's true. And so we're a little bit worried that that could create a log jam at the bar. So probably not, truth be told, but I would love to, but we don't have enough bartenders to keep that situation. Yeah. <laughs> reality often interferes with the Pinterest dreams. Exactly. So there are financial realities that must be dealt with, unfortunately. <laughs>
That's the truth. Now that hasn't changed since Kelly and I got married back in the nope, dark ages. That's true. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> the nineties. And never will. <laughs> All right, Brett, help us to know where we can find you. Of course, Blue Babies Pink is the blog and also the podcast, which I am guessing you can find in any podcast app, anywhere people listen to podcasts, they can find Blue Babies Pink, but where all can we find you all around the web? Yeah. So just to clarify, I think this was clear, but if not, so Blue Babies Pink, it's the same story. It's a 90,000 yes. word story. You can read it on bluebabiespink.com or you can listen to it. If you're a more audible person, you can listen to it on iTunes, Stitcher, all the different podcasting apps. So if you haven't checked it out, I would love for you to. Hopefully you would enjoy it. Other than that, you can find me on Instagram. I'm just at Brett Trapp. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. All those things, B-R-E-T-T, T-R-A-P-P. You know where to find me and I would love to connect. Please say hello. Love, love, love meeting new folks, particularly those who've read Blue Babies Pink. So. So great. Thank you so much, for really, for taking time out of the flurry of activity around wedding planning and all of the other many things that you have going on right now. We so appreciate you taking the time to come to Sorta Awesome. My pleasure. I love you guys. I love you awesomes. Love the tribe and community you guys have built. It's been really inspiring. Okay, awesomes. We cannot wait to hear your thoughts and feedback on today's episode. Don't forget, you can find us on social media at Sorta Awesome Pod over on Twitter. We are on Instagram at Sorta Awesome Show, and you can find us anytime on Facebook at facebook.com slash Sorta Awesome. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see y'all next time. Sorta Awesome was created and is hosted by me, Meg Teets. Sarah Robertson is our assistant producer and production collaboration comes from Kelly Gordon and Rebecca Hoffer. Kelly Gordon is our digital media producer and we are so thankful for the ongoing support from our listener supporters. Music is provided by the band Prager. You can find more of Prager's music at pragermusic.com. To find show notes on this and every episode of Sorta Awesome, and also to spread the Sorta Awesome love to all of your friends, you can head on over to sortaawesomeshow.com. 